Today on the Opportunity Zones podcast, the Opportunity Zone program has the potential to transform America, but how much money is expected to flow into these zones? Also, why might a corporate structure for OZ funds be more beneficial than a partnership? And what does every OZ fund need to do before raising money? Join me and my guest, business and opportunity fund consultant David Silliman, to find out. Welcome to another exciting episode of the Opportunity Zones podcast, the weekly show where we interview Opportunity Zones professionals and experts from fund managers to tax advisors, from real estate developers to venture capitalists. If it impacts Opportunity Zones or the Opportunity Funds industry, we cover it here on the Opportunity Zones podcast. Welcome to the Opportunity Zones podcast. I'm your host, Jimmy Atkinson, and today I'm joined by an Opportunity Fund consultant, he is president and fund developer at Easy Do It Opportunity Funds, David Zilliman. Thanks for coming on the show. Hey, Jimmy. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. So before we talk about Easy Do It Opportunity Funds and, and get into the nitty gritty, I wanted to wanted you to give me a brief overview about Opportunity Zones and, and more importantly, what does the program mean to you and why is it so important? Sure. So Opportunity Zones, they're relatively new. We had some guidance that came out in April of this past year where the state governors, as part of the updates with the TCJA, the Tax Cut and Jobs Act, the state governors and CEOs across all 50 states in Puerto Rico uh, put together some, some uh, census tracks, opportunity zones uh, to be specific. A lot of it was based off of the um, CDFA tracks already in place. And they looked for these areas that could be great for investment opportunities. And the IRS had structured this program that allows the self-certification of an opportunity fund. And the idea behind it is to allow businesses to create an avenue for investor capital to be injected into those businesses to help those businesses grow in those areas. And Obviously, as a result of the moment that lines were configured on maps and everything else like that, and with the way that the language is written in, and it kind of morphed from not just businesses, but now also real estate. And that's a lot of what we're kind of seeing in the market right now. But in general, the IRS estimates, you know, if this program would have been in existence last year, there could have been up to $6.2 trillion potentially invested in opportunity funds. The estimates this year, according to the uh, Assistant Secretary, uh, the Treasury Department, they're estimating anywhere between on a low end, 150 to $250 billion minimum flowing into opportunity funds between now and, and the end of tax season. I think it's personally going to be a lot more than that, but it's a great opportunity to be able to really help inject capital into these low income areas and to, to create community revitalization, to put people back to work, to create more jobs, to create stability, larger incomes ultimately more tax revenue over the long term for both the government and the municipalities. It will help increase property values. It'll help create growth. So there's going to be a lot of great opportunity that that if these opportunity funds, you know, morph the right way and they get applied the right way, I think will be a huge landscape change across America. They're, they're tax deferred money in, they're tax free growth money out. So they're a very, very lucrative investment a lot of comparison actually even being more lucrative than a Roth or traditional IRA in a lot of cases. There's some handcuffs to them as far as, you know, who, what, when, where, why, and how. So there's guidance on, on, you know, the nature of the deployment of the capital of these funds and everything, but all in all, it's a beautiful mushrooming forest that is, that is kind of happening right now. And there's a lot of people that are 
sitting on the sidelines. There's a lot of people that are in the space already as it's beginning to develop and grow. And a lot of, a lot of major companies have stepped in in big ways. And we're just really kind of seeing it grow. And I think it's going to have a huge impact all the way across America in every sector. I'm seeing it across, you know, not just real estate. I'm seeing it with businesses, with franchise investing, with real estate uh, residential investing, with biotech, with cannabis, with solar, with SkyTran type transit systems. I mean, we're seeing it across the board. Uh, just, uh, you know, people are really looking at these as just a unique opportunity to, to grow business, to keep America kind of going the route that it's going. I agree. It's a, it has huge potential to economically transform a lot of these uh, most distressed areas in the country. This, so the $6 trillion plus dollar figure you refer to, if, if, if I'm correct on that, I, I believe that is the amount of unrealized capital gains that are, that are sitting in investors' uh, accounts and corporate accounts at the moment. Is that correct? The $6.2 trillion is based off of uh, an IRS release and then also from the New York Law Journal. And they'd estimated that the, the total capital gains you know, in America last year was approximately, give or take a little bit, $6.2 trillion. Out of that, approximately $4.2 trillion was individual taxpayer gains, and roughly $2 trillion of that would, would be corporate uh, tax gains. Right, right. Obviously, that's a huge source of capital. That would dwarf the amount of money that's uh, being invested under some some act, some some different tax programs that's being compared to, such as the new market tax credit program. Am I right? Yeah, the, this this will replace the new market tax credit program in the long run. Right. Well, uh, before we dive in any further, I wanted to stop briefly and and talk about you. I, I know you have a lot of credentials as a consultant. You've set up seventeen opportunity zones so far and counting. Uh, but go, I want you to go back to the beginning real quick and talk about talk about you, David. What, what's the genesis of your passion? How did you get into this profession? Well, I, you know, I've been doing business consulting now for a number of years. Um, I also, I come from a pastoral and law enforcement background as well. So you kind of mix a little bit of, you know, the toughness and, and, and the rigidness of the work ethic from being, you know, working on your own as a law enforcement officer to the understanding and the importance of team building and vision casting as a pastor to the understanding and importance of of you know, construct and finance and, and basically putting together and aligning the spine of any business, which is people process products. And so I've been doing consulting for a number of years now, and I, I specialize in helping businesses grow from point A to point B. You know, I kind of come in, I do change management consulting, and then from there we do private equity raises. And so I, you know, my background has been in that private equity raise world with a background in taxation as, as you know, my family is heavily involved in the tax space in, in the uh, D.C., Northern Virginia area, worked with taxes, you know, pretty much, you know, from the time I, I can remember. So I was able to kind of look at this being a tax bill. And then with the structures of how the bill is written, it was very clear on how to set up funds. And so um, I got hired on as a consultant for a company called Sakari Lux and set up their opportunity funds. Sakari Lux was the second open opportunity fund in the country. It's one of a few opportunity funds that are, you know, a stock-based structure type fund. They've got great partnerships. We were, you know, as a company, we've been able to kind of set those relationships up. And, and now we've just kind of have morphed since May into this 
you know, ability through through easy do it where we've set the the right people in in, in alignment and the and the right um, systematic approach to where we build turnkey opportunity funds now and we do it in sixty days and it's literally all inclusive. Yeah. So talk talk to me a little bit more about that. I know you've set up seventeen of these opportunity zone funds so far through your through easy do it. And I know you're doing something a little bit different with how you're structuring these funds. So what goes into setting up an opportunity fund and what are most fund managers missing? Well, first of, first of all, you know, yes, we do believe that a lot of people are missing the forest from the trees right now. There's two ways that every opportunity fund is going to be structured. It's either going to be structured as a C-Corp or it's going to be structured as, a, as an LLC partnership. And, and although they're similar, there's differences between the two. A lot of people, where we see that people are missing the forest from the trees are, is this program was never originally intended uh, to spur the real estate market. As a matter of fact, we're seeing artificial inflated prices right now where everybody that's in these opportunity zones, they feel like you know, their property is sitting on oil. But it was always intended to help businesses grow right, right. In, these, in these opportunity zones as a way for businesses to put themselves out there and raise private equity. And so we, we looked at it from that core approach. What was the underlying ideology around opportunity funds? And then when the guidance came out, it was very clear that, okay, it, you know, one road leads, you know, left and one road leads right. 90, 95, 98% of the funds that we're seeing in the marketplace right now, because of the fact that they're real estate related, it's, focused around LLCs and because that's the typical structure when you think real estate deals, um, you got, you know, uh, pass through, um, tax benefits uh, as an LLC. Well, we looked at this and said, okay, let's look at it from the corporate standpoint. And so we structure ours as C corps and we issue stock and our approach solves a number of things. Number one, Right out of the gate, it solves the investor exit strategy, whereas that's, that is a, is a critical piece to the partnerships side of, of uh, the structure of these opportunity funds. And the big difference is, is how does a partner exit in the event that let's say that they've got some sort of life-changing event year three, and even though they had full intentions of holding it for the 10-year benefit, they've got to exit and li- get liquid by year three. Well, how do they do that? With the stock-based approach, the way that we've got set up, we've got a relationship set up with Entrex Capital Index Market, where we're listing the opportunity funds on the marketplace. It's a SEC-regulated uh, secondary private equity index market, and it's an actively traded marketplace. And an investor can invest into the opportunity fund as well as sell their position out of the opportunity fund by simply selling their stock. So it makes an easy exit strategy for an investor to get liquid. Whereas in an LLC-based model, the investor either has to sell his position to another investor that's willing to kind of assume his spot in the partnership. And that's going to take you know, the operating agreement to allow that to happen on the partners. Or the partners are going to have to come up with the capital. And if the capital is not capital from gains, then it creates a negative tax event for the partners. Or if the partners aren't liquid to be able to put the capital in to buy out the other partner that's looking to exit, then they're going to have to do something with whatever the investment is, whether it's a leverage or whether it's a liquidation. And that looks like in a partnership that it could be a significant amount of time for a partner to exit when they may have 
something going on when they just they need that liquidity. And that's where we looked at it from a stock-based approach. It allows us ultimately in the future to potentially look at, you know, going opportunity funds to ETFs, to REITs, to going public, plus the valuation models on stocks versus real estate are slightly different. And so, you know, that's our approach. And doing that gives the investors also a, a well, let's say, a fiduciary blanket to be able to go to in the event of, you know, fraud or anything like that. They've got the SEC to go to. Because any opportunity fund that is actually open and saying, hey, you know, any investor out there wants to, they can, you know, we're open to these investments, they're going to fall, whether it doesn't matter whether it's a corporation or whether it's an LLC, they're, they're both going to have some sort of SEC reg offering. And, you know, we looked at the path of least resistance and it allowed us to open and enter funds into the market space. Versus waiting on the on the on the sidelines the way that a lot of um, opportunity funds have, and it allowed us to be able to kind of come in, create the relationships, create these amazing opportunities funds, and then get them listed and get them out there. And our funds are already getting investor capital coming in. That's great. So well, that's a lot to unpack there. You obviously advocate for a corporate structure. There's a lot of benefits to it. The, the main one being the liquidity that it provides. Why why are so many funds set up as partnerships, though? Is it just inertia? Is that just the way it's always been done? And are, and are there any drawbacks to setting up under a corporate structure as opposed to a partnership? Okay, so both structures have their drawbacks and benefits, okay? When you look at most businesses, let's, let's use somebody like an Uber, for example, a business, okay? Okay. The reason why businesses are set up as corporations is to be able to allow multiple investor rounds to be able to help the business grow and then ultimately to put the business in a position to some at some later date and time do like what a Facebook did and go public or to do something to where they stay private and maybe they go into a marketplace the way that Overstock.com did by going from an IPO to a blockchain event and then allowing uh, creating an outlet to exit their stock. Um, you know, so they both are going to have their, their benefits and their drawbacks. The LLC place right now is a lot right now. The emphasis is on the real estate play. Everybody's looking at this from, you know, what's the next hotel, what's the next condo, what's the next resort or whatever the development construction is going to be to go on in the way of real estate. And, and although that has its place and its benefit at some point in time, the marketplace becomes saturated where, You've got more than enough deals and more than enough construction going on, but you still have this yearly wave of opportunity fund investors rolling money into opportunity funds, and it's going to have to grow then into the business. So what we what we think is going to happen is, is that you know a lot of these are starting off as LLCs. We're going to see probably in the next 24 to 36 months, you'll see the corporate side of the stuff also grow as more attention starts to get put on the businesses in these opportunity zones. The, the the benefits of the LLC is is that you know it, you you've got trade-offs from a taxation standpoint you know you've got a lower corporate uh, lower uh, tax rate for an LLC you've got pass-through benefits depreciation benefits you've got a number of benefits that from a real estate standpoint you know from the individual investor helps them whereas a corporation is going to pay its corporate taxes and then the investor themselves are going to turn around and pay some sort of tax as well or Subject, let's say could be subject to tax as well. 
you know, so there, there's, and, and the corporate's going to pay at a higher tax break, tax bracket. Now, what you've got to be able to look at is saying, okay, what is, what is today? What is five years from now? And what is 10 years from now going to look like in this, you know, this fund, you can't just be focused on, oh, well, you know, because there's a mad rush of money and you've got a lopsided supply and demand yield curve right now in the marketplace that, oh, we're just going to focus on the here and now. We looked at it and said that, okay, when you when you take these benefits and you look at the corporation structure, a lot of the TCJA was was written to, to and structured and designed to benefit corporations. You know, we saw the, the corporate tax cut also go into effect. So, and, and we're still seeing a lot of other benefits that are still rolling out. There's more bills in front of Congress. So this isn't done. And when you put everything in the context with our president, love him or hate him, this isn't being political, but just context and understanding, you know, background is king. I used to preach that uh, from the pulpit that, you know, you got to understand the context around something. Look at his background. His background is, you know, he's a business guy. He's a corporation guy. He's a real estate guy. So this all makes sense, you know, and, and we, we took the intended structure. It gave a more, more straight line to walk. There's tax trade-offs both ways, but, um, you know, it's, it's really just kind of dependent upon what the vision is. The vision is going to be a, a big thing on these funds moving forward. And the visions that we create for the funds are looking at, can we create a, a buyout opportunity for the fund in of itself? Uh, can we create investor liquidity easier? Yes, we realize there's tax, you know, potential uh, double taxation uh, stuff. But as a C-Corp, can we, does it open up to the trade-offs outweigh? And in our mind, the answer is yes. No, that's that's a good thing to think about when you're setting up a fund. And it's worth noting, as you mentioned, that the gap has narrowed considerably between, you know, an LLC structure and uh, versus a versus corporate taxes due to the some of the provisions in the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act that was passed last year. It seems like it's kind of like the Wild West out there right now, setting up these Opportunity Zone funds. I know there's a lot of funds that are getting started, and it's kind of hard to tell sometimes which ones are real and which ones may not be doing things uh, quite the right way. What are What are some of these funds missing in terms of documentation, and or what's the right way to go about setting up an opportunity zone fund? What are some of the things you need to have? That's the million dollar question that a lot of people are kind of scratching their heads on right now saying, I want to get into this space. How do I set it up right? Um, the updated guidance that came out a couple of weeks ago, two weeks ago from the IRS, the 70 page update uh, really kind of stressed the importance of certain documentations. Any opportunity fund that is... The easiest way to look at opportunity funds, first of all, from a setup standpoint, is remove the title opportunity fund from it for a second. Okay. Mm -hmm. That's just a pretty red little ribbon that's around the package. At the end of the day, it's still a business. That's the first and foremost. So anybody who's looking at setting up an opportunity fund has to think about, okay, I'm setting up a business. Now with that then comes, you know, documentation such as PPMs, operating agreements, if it is a partnership, if it's a corporation, bylaws, articles, um, charters, constitutions, things like that, all of that should be included. Uh, financial statements, estimates, forecasts, um, uh, community impact statements, 
you know, project impact statements. Uh, let me give you an example of project. What I mean by project impact statements, how many jobs is a project going to create? How long is it going to take? What's the, what's the potential revenue um, coming into to, to the county? Um, what, will it meet the 31 month timeline? Does it meet the proper capitalization from original use compared to substantial improvement? So, you know, all of that is, is stuff that is going to be required documentation, you know, for these things, including construction timelines on these projects that are real estate related. So anybody who's looking at setting up an opportunity fund, you got to understand it's not just saying, hey, we're an open opportunity fund and invest in us. Those and I've come across a lot of those type of funds. A lot of people looked at that quote unquote self-certification and took it one way and posture and position themselves. And that's what we don't want to see in the market space. We want to see these things done right. Any investor should be able to look at a private placement memorandum. Right. Just because it's a self-certification doesn't mean that you can get away with having zero documentation. And if you're an investor, you should you should probably demand documentation anyway, right? Yeah. That just seems that just seems like it's common sense. You would, but you've got a very lopsided supply and demand yield curve right now in the marketplace. What you've right, got, right. got a very, very heavy demand and very not enough supply to meet that demand. And so as a fund just kind of pops up, you've got demand that's like, ooh, let me just, you know, want to throw money at it. And the demand that, that's out there right now. A lot of the thought process is, is that, okay, this is a long-term investment. So they're investing and not really thinking about it for 10 years. And that's the, that's the wrong mentality to be looking at with these. Yeah. So that's, that's interesting. Obviously the sizzle of the tax benefit is very impressive when you're looking at any of these funds. I mean, just seeing the, the tax benefits that the program grants to these funds, but what about the fundamentals of the underlying investment? I mean, obviously that is what, what, what investors in these funds should be looking at or, what exactly should they be looking at or, or what should they be wary of investors when they're, when they're looking at opportunity zone funds? Well, I, I think number one, you hit the nail on the head. Um, it, it, it is about the underlying investment that the fund is going to be making. Um, first of all, you know, common sense would dictate, has the fund actually done the due diligence to ensure that the property is actually an OZ eligible investment? That, I think that would be, you know, just right off the get get go. The yeah, that's that's probably step zero, right? That's zero. But you know, where where where's where's the project at in a timeline? Um, mm -hmm. You know, some projects, you know, are, are just simply been identified, and there's no real timeline on it. And then when you start figuring timelines, and you look at the 31 month deployment without, you know, taking a penalty, you know, some of these projects might not actually be able to get done in that time. Um, that would be mm -hmm. something that as an investor, I think I would want to know. I, I think I want to know if it's property related, you know, what is the IRR on the individual investments? And then if it's a stock related fund, the way that ours is, what does the DCF look like? What does the VC valuation model look like? If it's a multiplier, what would the estimated future cash look like? Those are the type of things I want to know. I, I want to know who the team is. What's the background on the team? With the fact that everybody and their brother can self-certify, technically speaking, you're going to have a lot of unknown teams. So, you know, fund credibility. How about this? How is the fund actually being managed? The fund administration, investor relations. Am I relying on the company to do it? Or is it being professionally third-party managed? Is it being third-party audited? 
Do I know that the, the, the banking and the structures is their you know, investor due diligence being done the right way? Those are all things, you know, stock related funds like ours, you know, both our funds go through, through multiple due diligence processes to not only get listed with NES, but through Entrax and then through other partners as well, when they're looking at deciding whether to partner with the fund, who's connected to it? Uh, are, are there legal firms, tax firms associated with it? Those are the type of details that as a fund investor that I would really want to know and look at and, and be able to have, you know, my team or whoever do do due diligence and analyze on. Mm -hmm. And again, if you're an opportunity zone fund taking this seriously, you would have all of this documented in in a PPM or in your your financial documents. So that's always good to look for. Who is investing in these zones right now? Are these primarily large institutional investors or real estate developers, high net worth individuals, family offices? What, what's the breakdown exactly? Who, who is the target capital base for a lot of these funds? Yeah, it's, it's, it's all of the above. Um, you know, what we're seeing is, is, you know, a lot of very high net worth individual investors. We're starting to see more institutional interest. And what I mean by that is like, you know, uh, mutual funds, um, 401k pension plans, those mm -hmm. type of things, because of the nature of, you know, these opportunity funds being a long-term growth fund, they're getting a lot of interest uh, and inquiries. We're seeing family, a lot of family office, in, you know, interest in it right now. We're seeing broker dealer interest in the form that these are being looked at as alternative investment vehicles right now. You know, so you're just, it, it's, it's really just a, a, a very equally yoked blend of, of interest. Um, I'll tell you a, a very, very surprising um, little uh, tidbit that, that we've actually have, have noticed trending with, with uh, Sakari Lux, one of our first opportunity funds that we had set up, that our demographic, the age makeup of our demographic is predominantly between 25 and 35. So it's skewing much younger than, than most might think. Younger than actually anticipated. And I think a lot of that has to do also with, there's a lot of new young money in the market. A lot of new young money in the market that I don't think is really fully being looked at. You had a lot of people that exited the crypto uh, at the right time, you have a lot of new money in the market that's, you know, reinvested in other areas that have created gains and it's young money. I mean, we're still seeing that 35 to 56 age range as being our second area of demographic, which would be to be expected, but it was definitely unique to see that our primary was between the ages of 25 and 35. That's very interesting. So how, I don't know, you can speak to your client specifically or, or the industry in general. I'm, I'm just curious how are how are fund managers marketing their funds? How, how are they raising the money, basically? Who, who are they going after? That's a great question because technically speaking, the fund marketing, it, that's a fine line. Um, the structure of the fund and the nature of the offering as far as marketing saying, hey, we're an open fund accepting outside investment money. A Reg C offering allows you to to market. A Reg D offering doesn't. So that's really where the PPM is important because a lot of funds might just say, "Hey, you know, we're going to buy Google ad space. We're going to do this. We're going to do that." And then you read the you read the documentations in the PPM, and technically, legally, they're not supposed to be doing what they're doing. Right. Okay. So shifting gears a little bit now, I know the IRS 
released their initial guidelines last month. Were there any surprises from those uh, from from that publication uh, on your end, or anything that that you like seeing? Yeah, there, there's actually a few things that that I think that was surprising, and a few things that I think were were, were planned. One of the ones that I, 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 I that we were all kind of anticipating, and the expectation was that 180 day fund spend rule. Mm-hmm. You know, has been extended to 31 months via safe harbor and proper written plans and schedules. So that's where the documentation now is critical from that fund development standpoint. One of the things that I thought was very surprising, especially considering that there's actually a bill in front of Congress. Now, with the changes in the election, it'll, you know, yet to be determined if it's going to make it through now. But it was interesting in that they updated the, the, the time frame that you have to invest into an opportunity fund has been extended to June of 2037. So, you know, that means that, you know, you can have, this is going to now be a yearly wave of opportunity fund money. So I think that was surprising. It was definitely good to see a lot of examples related to original use, a lot of examples related to substantial improvements to LLC related questions. There's still some, some, uh, you know, uh, and, and then they also defined exactly what was, you know, capital gains, uh, who qualified for capital gains. It was nice to see that they also counted corporate capital gains in that as well. So companies like Apple and things like that, uh, even though the, the corporate capital gains only makes up, you know, approximately 2 trillion out of the 6.2, it's still nice to be able to see that in there. But it overall, I mean, it was pretty much what was needed. Obviously, they still have their 60-day waiting period on that. So we're probably going to see more definitive guidance come out in December. And then we'll probably see another another wave of guidance come out. I'm going to anticipate probably towards middle to late end of next year. Once they've had an opportunity to kind of let the dust kind of settle a little bit and, and see how this, is, this program is going to settle in. Historically speaking, you know, if we look back to the Reagan tax cuts, it took the, it took the IRS about three years to get that program, uh, you know, fully kind of ironed out. If you fast forward from Reagan to Bush Obama under the Hamp Heart program, same type of thing. That program took about two and a half years before changes really were were in play. And, and when those changes happened, a lot of it caused a lot of players to get out of that space. But there's a, there's a history. Same thing with the new market tax credits. So there's a history where we get we get one set of guidance that comes out. The, the, the very first set was extremely appealing, yet a lot of great area with a lot of questions. Second set, 70 pages is a huge update. You know, it's a lot of read, a lot of material to go through, but we'll see more guidance come out along the way. Right. And, and what are some of the biggest questions that the IRS has still not answered that you would expect to see in the next release at the end of the year? I think we're just going to see some more clear, a little bit more clarification towards the LLC structure side of stuff and more related towards tax related that, that is normal tax stuff that applies along with some stat additional. I think we're going to see additional updates regarding stacking of these benefits. Gotcha. I actually want to talk with you about tax credit stacking. I know that's something you have your eye on and I know that you're attempting to stack a lot of different tax benefits for the funds that you're setting up. So what credits are you going after in addition to just the opportunity zone um, tax benefits and what, and what type of impact does that have for the, for the investors when their taxes come due? 
the biggest, I'll tell you the biggest tax benefit that I see that I don't feel like is getting any real attention is the updates to section 1202 in the TCJA. See, opportunity funds are designed, the, the biggest benefit around opportunity funds is that the investor gets the, the, the step up the fair market value at time of sale, so long as they've held it for 10 years or more, effectively making the gains on the investment tax-free at 10 years. 1202 cuts that timeline in half and does it in five years. And, you know, so when we set up funds like the Sakari funds, for example, in Tampa, you know, we're looking at stacking not only section 1202 on top of historic tax credits, on top of opportunity zone tax benefits to the investors. And our strategy is to create, have, have a market space where our investors can exit at five years through NTRAX and take the 1202 benefit and cut our timeline in half for our investors. Could you dive into that a little bit more? I'm not sure all of our listeners are are familiar with Section 1202. Can you can you go over it basic details? So Section 1202, it, it, it Section 1202 deals with hospitality. Okay, um, so for those opportunity funds that are are in that hospitality that that type of space, if the investment from the opportunity fund into whatever that, let's say you're putting, let's say in, in Sakari's case, the hotel, if the investment is structured as a C-Corp investment, it falls under a 1202 tax ruling. Okay. As such, it states that that investment made, if held for five years, any gains on that investment beyond five years are, are tax-free gains, which means that our investors were using, they're, they're deferring the money by investing into an opportunity fund, which is a C-Corp, which is then connected with NTRAC. So now you've got that marketplace to buy and sell. And then our fund looks for projects. So I'll use an example. Let's say that that, that our Tampa project, let's say it's a, a $5 million buy. Let's say we get a $2 million historic tax credit, effectively putting our basis at $3 million for that. And then we turn around and because it's hospitality, it's a hotel, we make it as a, as a hospitality 1202 investment from the fund. And now our fund investors, they get that benefit at the five-year mark. Instead of, instead of the 10-year mark. Instead of having to wait the full 10 years. Right. So that's, that's a huge impact, obviously. It shortens that time horizon considerably. Are you doing anything stacking the new market tax credit program on top of Opportunity Zones? Um, I, I know that uh, I've got clients that are, yes. Mm. Same thing with low income tax credits as well. Okay. Okay. So, um, how does an opportunity zone investment compare to a 1031 exchange? I've seen lots of comparisons between these two programs. I know that the biggest difference obviously may be that the, uh, the benefit of a 1031 exchange only really kicks in when you die. Uh, can we, can you, discuss some of the similarities and differences between these two programs? Definitely, definitely. Um, the 1031, and you are right, the biggest benefit of the 1031 is it doesn't kick in your life, it kicks in your, in, in your whoever uh, inherits the property's life mm -hmm. for a step up in, in basis uh, at the time of death. Um, in this particular case, the biggest difference is with, with the way that the opportunity funds work is you can do a rollover from a 1031 exchange into an opportunity fund 
you defer the gain, you keep the principal. The principal becomes liquid to, to you, the investor. There is depreciation recapture that has to be considered um, when looking at the, the tax on that. But uh, there's a huge market shift where we think that a lot of the 1031 exchanges are going to flow more into opportunity funds. And why is that? Just because of the fact that, number one, you know, you're not paying a 1031 intermediary fee. You've got more flexibility with access to your principal where that's not locked up. You've got your tax-free gains, which effectively alleviates the need for the step-up in basis at time of death. So you can actually capitalize on that while, while you're still alive. So there's a lot of, lot of stark benefits to, to the opportunity fund versus the, the 1031s. Right now, I, I, and I know that 1031s are pretty much solely for real estate investment. And they have to be like-kind exchanges. And I know that the, the opportunity zones... And the funds that have been created so far, and a lot of the buzz has been focused on real estate investment. But what about business? It seems to me like the best use case for opportunity zone investing is reaping large capital gains. And I think that's more likely going to come from startup ventures than real estate development. Am I, am I right there in saying that? And, and, and how are you guys focused on, on business as opposed to real estate with, with some of your clients? Well, we've got one client in particular that really is, I think, going to be probably one of the bigger shining stars in the business sector right now. Um, that's called the Loyalty Opportunity Fund. It officially launches on November 15th. That fund is focused on investing in franchises, in Opportunity Zones franchises, and also developing the loyalty brand franchise model as well. The nice thing about this particular fund that really kind of, I think, sets it apart and, and being that shining star, that beacon of example, is that in this particular case, there's a 50-year track record of, history, of proven uh, uh, franchise history with this particular fund. Probably the single biggest recognized name in taxes as well. Uh, the fund is, is spearheaded by, by uh, John Hewitt. And um, it, probably one of the most recognizable names between Jackson Hewitt and Liberty Tax. Him and, and Gordon Jackson co-founded Jackson Hewitt, went public, sold it. Uh, he started Liberty Tax, exited that, and now um, is in the Opportunity Fund space and has an amazingly strong team of experts that have just strong, strong, strong history in in the franchise and in the business space. And, you know, that's an $80 million fund. You know, you talk about an opportunity that's it's unique. It's the only opportunity fund that I'm aware of that's actually focused on businesses in these opportunity zones. Right now, like we've kind of talked about, you know, we've said it, I've said it, and I'll continue to say it until the cows come home. I think that a lot of people right now are missing the forest from the trees in the grand scheme of things. Yeah, there's a hot market, commodity market on the real estate play just because of the fact that it's it's easy and and you know that's the first access that people are thinking when looking at this long term like we talked about earlier you know I do think that there will be that that 24 to 36 months from now maybe even a little sooner than that I think that there, a lot of the the marketplace shift will then focus towards looking at businesses in opportunity zones and finding good deals and tracks, I think, will be a good good starting point for a lot of that as well as as that 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 private equity index market 
they've got 4,000 businesses on there already. So, you know, they're already working with the states, developing out their their platform for these opportunity funds, while at the same time identifying quality businesses that are in zone areas that are looking for investors and making that connection between the investors and the businesses. That's what we see. And I, I think that as we grow, I think, you know, if we were to look out and, and guesstimate five years from now, I think it'll probably be a pretty healthy blend moving forward. Yeah, so how, how else do you expect the program to change over time? Well, a lot of what I, a lot of my, my opinion is, is centered around this ideology of self-certification. I love it and hate it at the same time. I love it because it really allows and opens up anybody to be able to set up an opportunity fund. But the reality of it is, is that anybody who is a partnership or, or a corporation, nothing stops them from raising private equity. Now, the only thing that makes this a little easier from a private equity raise for both partnerships and, and corporations is the fact that there's this tax benefit that makes it enticing for investors to now want to invest in those type of businesses versus investing in ETFs or REITs or in the marketplace or someplace else. So I love that aspect of it. I hate it because of the fact that I'm, I'm, I'm fearful that because it is so loose that there's room for bad actors to come into the marketplace and set something up that really looks and feels like it might be legitimate but really not be upon putting it under a microscope. And my, my fear and concern is, is that when we saw the, the changes with the HAMP Heart program, uh, that was that home loan modification program. And I realized that this isn't that, but I think that what we saw happen with that, with a lot of bad actors that charged people upfront fees up front, and then they ended up not doing anything. It changed ultimately about 24 months into the program. It changed and it put a lot of people out of business. When you look at the reporting requirements, the, the, the self-certification, the ideology that, that the IRS combined with the Department of Treasury you know, is going to somehow record, manage, keep track of what investments are zone investments, what funds are legitimate funds, what funds have documentation. It's an immense amount of, of reporting then that goes into that. I think that the idea of self-certification will change over time to where I think it'll be a more structured form of certification, not just a tax form, but that maybe a tax form with accompanying A through Z to validate and verify that you are a legitimate fund. I can see that happening. I can see them, you know, very well, potentially if this, if this works out well, because of the, the, the how wide reaching that this can be, not just from real estate, but from hospitals to schools to to tech to manufacturing to A to Z, this can be widespread. If this goes well, I could actually see this being extended well beyond 2037, 2047. Well, that's great. Uh, shifting gears a little bit now, I actually want to look at this program from an investor's point of view just for a minute. Just a, a regular investor, let's say, individual investor reads an article in the Wall Street Journal about Opportunity Zones sees a segment on CNBC about opportunity zones. He go he goes ahead and sells his Facebook stock or house or whatever, realizes a gain. What's his next step? How does he invest in opportunity zones? How does he find a fund to invest in? What are his options? That's a great question. So, you know, a lot of those type of investors right now there's there's few real marketplaces for funds. 
our anticipation is that by the end of the month, one of the very first places that he could go to is go to Entrax, E-N-T-R-E-X. You can Google that and get on there and take a look at funds and create an account and go through that process and invest in those funds that are there. There's a number of places that have fund directories lists. Um, Nova Gratix got one. The National Council for State Housing Agencies has one. Opportunity-funds.com has one. The National RIA uh, has one. Um, so there's a lot of places that, that are setting up these fund directories. Hopefully here pretty soon, you'll start to see more funds that start to kind of get into that alt investment space with broker-dealers. And so they very well may be able to just go right through whoever they're doing investments with now and, and say, hey, I want to invest in opportunity funds. The other thing that they can do also is they can just simply Google a lot of these opportunity funds just by sheer nature and design of them not being publicly traded and being private. They set up you know, their own web pages. They set up their own processes, systems, things like that, where you can kind of request more information. You can just Google opportunity, you know, opportunity funds now open, opportunity funds, you know, now accepting investors, opportunity funds open to investors, you know, stuff like that. You know, if, for a list of opportunity funds that we've got through Easy Do It, they can visit our website, easydoit.com, and that's E-A-Z-Y-D-O-I-T.com. If they want to find the Sakari funds, they can do it two ways. They can just go to Sakari, S-I-K. A-R-I, Lux, L-U-X-E dot com, or just Google the word qualified opportunity funds. We're page one on Google. So it's, it's very easy to kind of see, but they're out there right now. I'm, my guess advice would be most investors are probably going to have to do a little digging. Yeah, they're not all out there out in the open. There's not, and the ones that are open you know, there's really roughly 18, maybe 20 funds now that are legitimately, quote unquote, open to the point to where an investor can actually invest. You have a lot of funds that have made announcements, a lot of press releases, a lot, a lot of that. But legitimate funds that an that are, you know, investor ready, where that investor's on that 180 day time clock now. Mm -hmm. And have the right documentation that you're looking for that we discussed earlier. Exactly. Right. But you forgot one resource though, Dave, you forgot opportunitydb.com. We also have a oh, list of, uh, absolutely, absolutely. Opportunity DB is, <laughs> you know, you guys are, you know, considering your history and your background and what you, what you've done in the, in the past with other, uh, directory based sites in, in the funding spaces, I have no doubt that that opportunity DB is going to be a absolute go-to resource. Well, thanks for that, Dave. I appreciate it. So, Hey, Thank you for joining me today, Dave. For our listeners out there, please check out this guy's website, Dave Silliman. He's got a lot of great resources, easydoit.com with a Z. And uh, for more, you can check out the show notes on opportunitydb.com. I'm going to have links to all of the resources that we discussed on today's show. So again, opportunitydb.com slash podcast, and you'll find the show notes for today's show. Dave, again, thanks for joining me. Jimmy, I got to say thank you. It was a real pleasure. I love what you're doing in this space. I love how you've got your website laid out. I went through with great detail. Extremely impressed with the, with the amount of, of content that you've already produced on the subject matter. And it just, it's, it's been an honor and a privilege. I want to say thank you to anybody that's listening. And again, just thank you to you. Oh, thank you, Dave. I appreciate the kind words. That's it for our show today. 
A huge thank you to you, our listener. If you liked this episode, please rate and review us on iTunes. The Opportunity Zones podcast is produced by the Opportunity Database. Visit OpportunityDB.com to learn more about Opportunity Zones and Opportunity Zone Fund investing. You can learn how to subscribe to this podcast and read more about today's guest in the show notes by visiting OpportunityDB.com slash podcast. And we'll be back soon with another episode.